Let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, uh, we thank you that we love you because you loved us first. Enable us as we hear your word uh, to continue in the response of love that is your gift to us, uh, toward you and toward one another. Uh, for the sake of Jesus' glory, we pray. Amen. Uh, well, Christians are obsessed with sex. They're always talking about it. They're always telling us who we can have sex with, uh, with whom. They're always sticking their noses in where they have no place. And they're haters. Uh, you can't deny another person's sexuality, sexual preferences or actions without hating them. And they're dangerous. Uh, sex is such a natural part of life. Anyone who gets in the way of someone else expressing it is harming them. Now, I say these things not because I believe it. Let's be clear, not because I believe it. Uh, but because this is the world's wisdom. I expect uh, all of us, or at least most of us, have heard uh, some or all of those things said. It's the air we breathe. It's the tsunami of the so-called sexual freedom of our day. And a week doesn't go by, in fact, I think it's closer to a day, where this freedom to do whatever you want isn't promoted and any alternative or form of self-discipline is denounced. Sadly, too, this is a slander uh, because it does misrepresent uh, what God teaches for Christians. This is a slander that's not just out there, outside the church. Char church uh, charges like these are laid against churches like ours by those in other churches. It even happens within the Anglican church denomination, to our horror. And even closer to home, and bringing greater pain, the same accusations from time to time have been made by individuals in our church. Now, our whole passage today isn't about sex and therefore not this whole sermon either. But given the place and drive of sex has in our lives, we may as well own the conflict that exists over it and how to think about it and how to act on it. Might as well shine a light on the divide. In fact, it's the, it's the grand canyon of a gulf that exists between the world's wisdom for sex and God's wisdom for it. So let me remind you of two things before we go on. Uh, the first is that wherever you are at uh, this morning, wherever this word from God meets you, and, and even whether you trust uh, Jesus or perhaps you don't trust Jesus but are looking on and listening in today, whether you find your circumstances today, whichever you are, in sharp focus, or you feel the weight of friends, or loved ones, or just the conflict that we know is out there in this area, remember, God's word meets us where we are at. It always meets us where we are at right now, but at the same time, we should expect that it won't leave us where we are.
The second thing is, we're touching upon uh, aspects of our lives that are very uh, sensitive and, uh, and rightly so. And sadly, many, too many, have sinned against others, uh, been sinned against by others. Uh, and I'm conscious of that and uh, that we even may have folk among us who feel the weight of that. And given the conversations I've had and the, the nature of this topic today, I, I want to remind you that you do not need forgiveness for the sin of others. Now, like last week, there is far more going on here in today's passage and chapters 5 and 6, and in fact, more widely in this whole letter to the church in Corinth than him just telling them, do this and don't do that. Uh, let me challenge you today, as I did last week, not just to latch onto the first thing, the, the first thing that's sort of got currency in your mind that you see on the surface here. Let's uh, stop ourselves from merely doing that and instead ask, What's going on here? Why ought we to do this and not do that? Because compared with uh, the narrative that I shared at the beginning and that other people will speak and say of us and of God, we have a better story. We have a better story. God is not denying us good things but has liberated us to enjoy his best. What we hear today aren't mere rules about judging and sex, but the life-changing way of thinking about ourselves and these, and so too uh, it will spill into other areas of our life and other decisions we'll have to make as we live now, looking forward to the life to come. We talked last week about Paul's deep concern of how the Corinthian church looked more like the world around them than the people of God. That even after they'd been radically changed, their actions had not. And so right at the outset of uh, his letter, and I am going to put the verses up for these uh, verses in chapter 1, back in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 from uh, verse 1, he captures this radical transformation that God has made in them. And because he sets this up right at the beginning, we need to keep remembering it wherever we are uh, throughout each chapters. So let me remind you of chapter 1, verse 2, that Paul writes to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, indeed made holy by Christ, and called to be his holy people, that is, to walk in holiness. This is a turn-things-on-their-head revolution that God has made in us. When we accept Jesus as our Lord, listen to the change it brought in them and brings in us. So I'm going to read on from verse 4. I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in him you have been enriched in every way, with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge, God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will also keep you firm to the end so that you will be blameless 
on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is who we are in Christ, lacking nothing, waiting confidently. That's the first nine verses of 1 Corinthians. But then at chapter 1, verse 10 of the 16 chapter letter, he tackles the Corinthian church's failure to walk in step with who they've become. Our new identity is what matters above all else. The good news about Jesus is we who were unholy and under the judgment of God could be forgiven, made holy before God, be children of the king. And so do you see how even in these short verses we're actually we're given the motive and the means uh, to do what Paul what God says uh, in what comes next in the letter to honor the one who so wanted us through the Lord Jesus and the means we don't find that in ourselves but in God's work within us let me say that another way God's grace saves us but as he saves us and we trust him out of that mighty change he gives us responsibilities but even those responsibilities we're able to fulfill because by the same grace uh, God enables us to fulfill them we are holy now be holy so turn to chapter 6 with me and we're in the middle of what holy living looks like again I've said it before I'll say it again not just a set of rules but an understanding of who we are of our identity and what should shape our attitude not pride but humility not self-pleasing but God-pleasing and so we come to God's word on seeking justice in the first 11 verses and then how to honor God in our with our sexuality in verses 12 to 20. Remember too though we're not just going into each of these topics but we're actually seeing modeled here how to think about uh, who God is who we are how he's brought us together the way that applies in our lives and how we should live we're given a pattern uh, as we work through these particular issues that will have benefit in others as well so what does God's best for seeking justice look like and this is where as David said uh, I'm going to read through the passage uh, sometimes this morning I'll give a comment as we go uh, but it's very good to have it open in front of you it won't be on the screen if any of you has a dispute with one another do you dare to take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people? Or do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, do you ask for a ruling from those whose way of life is scorned in the church? I say this to shame you. Is it possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers, but instead one brother takes another to court, and this in front of unbelievers? It's very clear 
even though he uses this sort of, you know, uh, writing flourish of what he believes they should be doing as opposed to what they are doing, and it's quite the opposite. The thing to remember here too is we're not talking here about criminal cases but about the sorts of conflicts that can end up in court. Conflicts over money, conflicts over property, conflicts over being mistreated, often conflicts because, well, uh, we see ourselves as the most important person in any situation. And what's clear is that within this church, people were in such serious conflict with each other that they're talking about each, uh, taking each other to court uh, to get what they think belongs to them. That is not a pretty picture, is it? No? Anyone out there? That is not a pretty picture. And I can say I haven't come across that happening in our church. Thankfully, because clearly it mustn't. But there are disagreements and conflicts that happen in our church uh, across this whole spectrum from minor to gravely serious. How, how does our identity shape how we deal with them? Because being a follower of Jesus doesn't mean that you uh, don't have conflict. But he makes all the difference in how we deal with it. And we saw last week in chapter 5 how the church is God's gift to each of us, the church being this church, our church with one another. Uh, I'm not talking about an institution but God's people, a congregation like this. Uh, our identity in Christ means we have this great privilege of being served by one another and this great responsibility to serve one another including when it comes to judging and being discerning. Uh, did you see 6 verse 2? We will judge the world on the last day with Christ. If we're going to have that privilege and we know the mind of God, we have the word of God, God's wisdom is right uh, and just, then surely, surely Paul expects... Uh, you or I can seek the aid of a brother or sister in Christ to help you in a disagreement with your other brother or sister in Christ. Uh, we can lovingly serve one another. We ought to, we must, so that they may draw from the deep well of God's wisdom uh, to help settle it rather than from what this world calls wisdom. By the way, he's not expecting that Christians just know what to do, that God just goes... Uh, he's expecting the wisdom of God that we find here in 1 Corinthians and across our Bibles. That will shape and inform our judgments as we are shaped and informed by it. But, but perhaps the most serious thing that he says against the Corinthian church uh, in these verses... Uh, is the fact that they're off to lawsuits with each other at all. So from verse 7, the very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you have been completely, completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong and you do this uh, to your brothers and sisters. The world's wisdom is to look after number one. To look after ourselves 
uh, to have the most, to influence the most, to bathe in our pride the most. But here is a warning to us. If we find ourselves in conflicts where those things, where ultimately those things are the root of that conflict, then we're totally out of step with the holiness that God made us to have. And it's such a serious warning uh, that it comes with you are in danger of losing your salvation and life with God if you continue down that path. But listen to these great words from verse 9. Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Uh, do not be deceived, uh, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. They're not the great words. Verse 11 is where the great words are. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, that is made holy, you were justified, uh, made right, with God in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Those, those last words, those words of verse 11, don't they lift your heart? Thank you for responding. That's great. They should lift your heart. And do they apply any less to me or you than they did to those who first heard them? Verse 11 again. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed... You were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. We come here as church each week. Uh, you look around and you go, oh, this looks like ordinary people. But we come as God's holy people, forgiven people. Uh, set free from enslavement to sin and judgment people. And we know we are no better than anyone else. We must not think we are better than anyone else. Deuteronomy 7 that we heard read where the people of God stood at the edge of the land of God, he reminded them again, you are not here because of anything you have done, but because of everything I have done. We are the same. So we may have the, as our inheritance the kingdom of God and so with it every good gift from God. Hit pause there for a moment and let me be clear on what God uh, is and isn't saying here. First, this is not saying that we should bypass the courts when someone does something criminal that we should try and sort it out in-house. God has given the government its responsibilities uh, as it's clear what the churches are here. Though that's not to say, too, uh, that every and any law governments come up with should be obeyed by us. There are times, uh, there are places uh, now, and you never know when things are going to change, where there will come laws and rules made by governments that actually, in obedience to God, we may need to disobey and live with the consequences. 
I will warn you, though, it certainly uh, won't be as often as our sinful hearts tell us. <laughs> but it is a possibility. Remember, uh, being Christian does not mean we don't have conflicts among us. The difference is how we deal with it in a God-honouring, his holy people way. Uh, God has given us each other and he's given mature Christians among us uh, who can encourage uh, us, encourage us in conflict not to be proud but humble, uh, not to hold on to long accounts but to be forgiving, can help us to navigate a way where we do not see one when we face conflict with one another. That is a great comfort, isn't it? Well now, while we've separated uh, making judgments and uh, the section on sexual immorality, these two are actually tightly woven together through chapters five and six. Sexual immorality is the reason well, in fact, actually, the church's failure to make a sound judgment about sexual immorality is the trigger for chapter 5. Uh, then comes, you know, talk of the need for judgment and the place of appropriate judgment, not of those who are not God's people, but among those who are. And then he delves into judging but comes back to sexual immorality and not just that, uh, but it's, it's, it's any other repeated sin from which... Uh, someone is not willing to repent and turn back to God. Please remember that. That's an important distinction. Because if it was about not sinning at all, then none of us would inherit the kingdom of God. But continual, habitual, repeated, going back to the same sin again and again when God has spoken clearly, that's a sign that you're outside the kingdom of God where we should display the opposite. The badge of those who will inherit the kingdom of God is that we turn back to God in humility, that we confess our sin and that we rely on his wonderful forgiveness. So then, how does that lead us to act? How can we live in step with our identity? Uh, and what is... Uh, uh, the God's answer or God's best uh, for sex uh, in this life. To hear this part of the passage, I'm going to do what I did with the other passage. Uh, I'll read through. I'm actually going to stop a couple of times along the way. Uh, let's read it together. Uh, 6 verse 12. I have the right to do anything, you say. What Paul's doing here, he's, he's actually had a report of the sort of thing that they've uh, thought and come up with uh, and, and they've recognised the new freedom that they have in the Lord Jesus. He speaks then of his, of his own reflection, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything. They've said that already his reflection, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say, verse 13, food for the stomach and the stomach for food and God will destroy them both. And, and what they're getting at is, oh, it's just another, you know, part of 
life, like going to the fridge to eat or going to the bathroom to go to the toilet. Uh, it's just another function of our bodies. But then he says, the body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. He begins here, he'll become even stronger on it, that, that we are stewards, managers, uh, responsible to someone else other than just ourselves of our bodies and our lives. And so he goes on to say the body isn't something like a piece of clothes, you know, that you can, you know, get dirty working in the, in the trenches or in the yard and then it'll just be discarded later on so it doesn't matter what you do with it. He says, by his power God raised the Lord from the dead bodily and he will raise us also bodily. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute uh, or in any other form of sexual immorality? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. Here's the thing. And this anchors uh, into the rest of God's word that actually uh, sexual intimacy is expressly only for in marriage. And he's quoting Genesis 2 here with a great outset of the Bible on marriage. But again and again, uh, faithfulness in marriage to the person you are married to and the, the, the way in which uh, sexual holiness is sexual intimacy only uh, within the marriage of a man and woman and uh, no sexual activity outside of that, whether married or single, means that sexual immorality is anything that goes beyond that. I said earlier on that we may be accused of being uh, uh, completely obsessed with sex. Uh, I want to push back. I actually think it's the other way around. What we're hearing today here is nothing new. It is nothing fancy, so as to speak. No, not a new idea that we have come up with lately. It is God's eternal word of God's eternal plan for marriage. Sexual intimacy is, is just a part of what fits under that. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. And so having picked up on the body and our relationship to God, here's where the rubber hits the road. Verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honour God with your bodies. Talking, reflecting on our, um, the sorts of conversations that I've mentioned that happen 
and not just with those outside of the church, with those in it. One of the challenges I think we face is that most of us, most of us really have trouble at putting ourselves in the shoes of how other people think and that they think differently from us. Uh, we find that really hard. And so we do have a tendency as people, when someone says something, we always filter it through our framework. So if we think good people get good things and bad people get bad things, which ultimately the majority of people do and apply to religion as well, if we say to them, we have this good thing from God through Jesus, they think, we think, we deserve it or have earned it and are better than them. Not always, but that's the risk. And it's not a risk that we should go, well, therefore we'll avoid that. Just be aware of that. But the other thing that's going on in our society at the moment, and it is, it, it, like, you can, you can almost literally see the water of the tsunami washing around at our feet, is a way of uh, viewing conflict and different views as, no, no, we can't live together and uh, happily even though we disagree. You have to affirm what I think. And that is certainly being applied here when it comes to sexuality and uh, uh, innovations about gender. Our interest, our interest first and foremost today must be what has the Holy God prepared for us and given us. And what we see is that he has given us what's best. Uh, we need not be enslaved by views of seeking justice and uh, sexual intimacy that do not come from God. But it is a great danger that we might be. And so we need to love and care for one another and speak uh, appropriately, freely uh, in our church and in our youth groups and in our uh, small groups. Thomas Cramner, who gave us the prayer book, which we don't see very often in this service, but it's, Doug throws his hands in the air. Uh, Thomas Cramner, uh, Ashley Null has, has uh, captured one of the great things that Cramner uh, taught and reflected in that prayer book, which is that the human heart, the sinful heart, what the heart wants, the mind justifies and the hands do. That's what's going on in my heart, and in the hearts of everyone else. But by God's grace, our hearts have been changed. And so we may walk in holiness that not only loves God, but loves each other in the way we treat each other in marriage and singleness. The question that each of us has to answer today, and we have to answer as a church, is whom will you trust? Will you trust the voice of the world? It's very loud. It's pretty persuasive. 
It's very frequent. Or will you trust the voice of God, your creator and recreator through the Lord Jesus who knows what is best? Embrace God's better story. Flee sexual immorality. This is what holiness looks like. Let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, we confess uh, that the good things that you give us are turned and twisted by sin and the opportunities that sin has to leverage them. We pray, Heavenly Father, that by your spirit you would uh, work in us, that we might live holy and godly lives, that we might seek your forgiveness when we sin, that we might stand shoulder to shoulder by your work in us, pointing each other to the Lord Jesus and so walking in the godliness of which we have spoken today. We pray in Jesus' name.